And I suppose if reflective practice, as you mentioned, Steve, is helping us to feel more competent, it's helping us to feel more in control of the way in which we're developing. And if we engage in, in reflective practice in certain ways, it might help us to feel more related. We're actually satisfying some of the basic psychological needs that we have that are directly linked to mental well-being, for instance. So we have to see reflection more than just reviewing sessions. We have to see reflection as an opportunity to reflect on other things of, uh, that, that are associated with ourselves and our being. And if we do that, then, yeah, we can we can really focus in on you know, what what are we doing within our lives that are, that's allowing us to live our true values? What is it that's giving meaning within our lives? How are we engaging in practice in a way in which we can bring ourselves to the party? All of those factors are linked to eudaimonic aspects of, of well-being, right? Hello and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. My name is Steve Ingham and in these discussions I explore how we perform, how we support others to perform and the underpinning knowledge and concepts at play. Now the reference point is sporting performance, coaching, performance science, athlete experience but equally I'm fascinated by other performance fields too such as the military or performing arts. And the one thing that you will get from listening to the Supporting Champions podcast is variety, because it's my firm belief that supporting ourselves, supporting others to perform requires diversity of thought, breadth and perspective to complement our natural inclination for deep expertise. I hope you enjoy the conversation in today's episode or from the back catalogue. And if you do, please subscribe to the show. Leave a review on iTunes in particular. That really helps the show. And if you're feeling like supporting and championing us, then tell a friend, colleague or share what you've enjoyed on social media. We'd love to hear your thoughts. This week's guests are Zoe Knowles and Brendan Cropley. Now, I'll let Zoe and Brendan introduce themselves in a moment, but Zoe is a professor of engagement and learning at Liverpool John Moores University, and Brendan is a professor of sports coaching at University of South Wales, but both are sports psychologists by trade. And they're also pioneers for reflective practice and have been moving this field forward together with a band of researchers and applied scientists. And they've recently released the second edition of the book Reflective Practice in Sport and Exercise Sciences. So we get into this in the discussion, all aspects of reflection, and we think about what reflection actually brings, like the evidence, whether reflection enhances your own individual performance, some potential downsides of reflection, whether certain types of personality or biases can affect how one engages with reflection, the potential effects of reflective practice on our own mental health. And of course, we explore different models of reflection. And Zoe and Brendan take you through a fuller reflective cycle and a shorter, snappier version, which sort of gets us on to, you know, the how, when and under what circumstances you might reflect If you go to the show notes of the episode, you'll see a reflective practice worksheet link and you can download that and use that for yourself if you want to get into using reflective practice for your own work. So let's get into the conversation. Right, 
Good afternoon, guys. Welcome to the podcast, Zoe Knowles and Brendan Cropley. How are you both? Are we all right? Yeah, very good. Thank you, Steve. Very well, thank you. Now, I've got two cracking experts on this idea of reflection, so I'd love to get into that with you today. Um, before we get going on that, Zoe, just give us a bit of a, an intro to yourself. Um, so my name's Professor Zoe Knowles. I'm based at Liverpool John Moores University. I'm a professor of engagement and learning, as well as a HCPC registered psychologist. Uh, very interested in how practitioners learn and how we as academics engage with the general public. Uh, and that sort of represents the portfolio of work that I have at, at John Moores University. Thank you so much, Zoe. And and don't forget, you're the first female uh, chair of Bases. We should we should mention that too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I am really proud to be the first, and hopefully not the last, female chair of of Bases, and it's celebrated its thirty year anniversary um, in twenty twenty three. So so really enjoying the the role and the experience and the opportunity to work and influence the the, the sector. Um, so yeah, exciting times. Why has it taken 30 years? So that's another, that's another podcast, but um, <laughs> yeah, anyway, uh, Brendan, give us your, give us your intro. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm Brendan Cropley. I'm a professor of sport coaching at the University of South Wales, where I'm also the head of the Centre for Football Research in Wales. And uh, I suppose, <clears throat> It was in 2004, really, where I first met Zoe and um, sort of coerced her into working with me to help me to develop my understanding of reflective practice and certainly develop ideas around my PhD because Zoe had obviously um, previously conducted research in the area and, uh, and published widely in the area. So I was very fortunate enough back in, in my fledgling academic career to really start working with, with some fantastic people. And we've been lucky for that relationship, uh, professional relationship to blossom over recent years. Um, I'm an accredited sport and exercise scientist with the uh, British Association of Sport and Exercise Sciences and a fellow of that organisation. And like Zoe said, it's um, fantastic to be able to draw um theory to practice together within the applied work that I do but also to try and uh, contribute to BASES its mission and and to develop in the field as well I suppose across the performance sciences so yeah that's me. BASES are going to love this episode so far aren't they like three or four like major hits on it um <laughs> so so it's interesting to get into this and I'd, I'd love to sort of go through a series of questions that, that I've got um, around reflection, how we can make this useful for people, the value of the exercise in itself, um, ways in which we can enhance our understanding of what we do in this world of work, whether it's as practitioners, whether it's leaders, as managers. I, I think it's it's got such wide application. Um, I'm also a, a devotee of the area. So I noticed that you've got a hashtag running, Team RP. Is this is this something I can get a badge for or something like that? Because <laughs> because I, when I see it, though, I've got to say, I, when I see Team RP, I, I, it looks like received pronunciation to me. So I wonder if we've got a 
have a little sense of decorum in our uh, in our vocal cords. But um, I know I love that and a little sense of belonging. People who are committed to developing this as a as a way. I I was indoctrinated. Is that the word? <laughs> I was inculcated into the 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 team when I first started working in professional sports science. So this was back in 1997. And I worked for Andy Miles, who's one of your co-authors, collaborators. He was my boss at the time, West Midlands Sports Council. And my, my partner in crime was Elsa Anderson, now Elsa Niven, who did her PhD on reflection. And I was sort of like a guinea pig. I, it was... Um, it was like she was developing all these questionnaires. Steve, can you fill this in? Oh, really? Okay, go on then. And then like an hour later, I've done this sort of long exercise. And then the next day she says, can you reflect on this? Can you reflect on that? And um, and actually it was one of those moments where I found it quite burdensome, if you like. I found it quite hard work. Maybe because it was, it was the, the frameworks were still just starting out. Um, but I really noticed the benefit and the benefit of being able to sort of process this overwhelming complexity that I'd thrown myself into, make sense of it, move forward, prevent mistakes and so on. So I think, I think you've got a devotee um, asking you the questions today. So let's try and be objective and making sure that we're not overselling it. Um, who um who wants to kick me off with I guess what is reflection? Uh, let's start kind of with the the, the simple the start point there. Do you want me to take it, Zoe? Or do you want to talk about hashtag team RP to start off? <laughs> team RP first. Yeah, how do you get in the club? How, how do you how do you get in the club? Um it, it I guess it's somehow we've created a community of of people through through accident and through purposeful relationships um, and none more so than than when we've been putting the the books that we've we've got together um, and, and particularly with the the latest one a, a sense of there's always that moment when you go out and ask people about contributing to a book and you think are people going to say no and genuinely everybody that we went to said yes and and I think it was it was attractive as a format because of the way that they could write but what we also created was a community of people who were really keen to talk about how they'd used reflection and they benefited from it and wanted to write in a in a way that didn't lend itself to to a, a germ, journal format, and and we were staggered. We were absolutely staggered that this that this concept that came originally from teaching and nursing. We didn't invent this in sport. We we basically um, took aspects of it from other more established disciplines. And there is a community of reflective practitioners a, a, across the world now. So, so our our sort of hashtag Team RP is perhaps quite quite nucleic to a group of of researchers in in the UK. Um, but we are connect, you know, we are connected kind of globally, and we we wanted 
the projects that we have been involved in in the UK and globally to allow people to come forward because this isn't something that as I say lends itself to to writing in a, in a journal or a scientific format but let's get together let's discuss things and we've had meetings around the book and people joined us from all corners of the world and it's it's been it's been really really good so we want to try and continue that momentum so it might be hashtag team rp version 2.0 that that comes out from 2023 maybe don't call, don't call it version 2.0 make it sound like chat gpt artificial okay. intelligence that, that's that's almost the opposite of what reflective <laughs> practice is isn't it chat gpt give me a good reflection for the day <laughs> come on then let's so so what is what is reflection if people are tuning in thinking uh heard of it or need to understand a little bit more where do we start well <sighs> I, ref- I, I sort of uh, teflon to the question off onto Zoe around the hashtag Team RP because I think this is a really important part of helping us to understand and conceptualise what reflective practice is and, and probably isn't. Um, and the reason that we talk about this community is that many people will have very nuanced views around the concept of reflective practice, but I suppose at its heart, Reflective practice is about a process that we engage in to help us to learn from our experiences. And you might learn many things from your experiences. You might learn some very mechanistic things about what you do uh, as a practitioner or as a a professional or as a human being. You might learn lots of stuff uh, about yourself and uh, your values and how congruent your behaviours are with those values. You might learn a lot about the environment in which you work, you live, you operate. So in terms of trying to classify reflective practice as a particular thing, it's it's very uh, difficult, which is why we see so many different types of definitions within the literature, which can convolute the idea a little bit. But I suppose the idea is, is that it is about le- it's a process that is about learning, learning about ourselves. It helps us to learn about what we do, how we do it and, and the context in which we do it. And it's about trying to make improvements. And those improvements can be about changes in practice, ideas, values, etc. But it might just be about changes in your understanding and knowledge. It could be about corroborating that what you do is working and why it's working and what impact it's actually having. So I appreciate that it's not easy to give a a textbook type definition, even though I think Zoe, myself, Andy, Emma, I've tried to in the past, as have many other researchers and practitioners. But I think we need to talk about it as a process, as a as an applied mechanism, if you like, that we can engage in and that we can kind of shape our practice with and through. So we've hinted a little bit about the book. So uh, reflective practice in sport and exercise sciences, and you've just mentioned Andy Andy Miles, who I've mentioned, but also is a co-author, and Emma Huntley as as um co-editors on the book um i think i'd be right um okay so so it's very much in the sense of i guess that this lovely quote about you know we don't we don't learn from experience we learn from reflecting on experience and that that idea about just just making sure you're you're taking the lessons forward rather than just thinking i'm experienced well i've got lots of i've done lots but did you actually mature your learning? Did you actually, did you maximize that, that opportunity? Um, so you hinted there that 
the origins, certainly from where you've took a lot of the, the base was, was around, was from nursing. And I'm curious to ask about why they, they did reflect, why they developed re- reflective practices at all. Because when I go around and talk to high performance teams, businesses, and so on, one of the things that I've noticed is really absent is, is a process to review the process to reflect and debrief. And maybe you can help me with some of the differences between some of those things. Um, but when I talk to partners in space exploration, when I talk to NASA, when I talk to the SAS, when I talk to ambulance workers, when I talk to air traffic control, high-performance industries where they if you don't review and reflect, lessons are lost that potentially could protect life. Is there a sense that that's where it came from, from nursing, in the sense that they were reflecting because they wanted to better improve clinical care? I think that there's two things. There's the process. Um, so so absolutely, it's been in nursing for, for many, many years. And, and back when I did my PhD, um, I worked with operating theatre practitioners and tried to understand how reflection was embedded uh, within their within their practice, and they had a process. They had time to do it, so it was part of their shift. It was part of the expectations of their role, and it and it was guided by by policy and standards and and expectations. So those were the three things really that when we looked at the sort of transfer into sport, we looked at the definitions that were out there in teaching and, and nursing. And they were they categorized the the process, but perhaps weren't sport specific. In terms of time, that was always really, really difficult. When do you find time to do it? And that and that includes from practitioners who are maybe going out and doing um, through their degree programs, curriculum placements and things, and maybe working into the evening. And um, we were advocating a process by which you try and capture some reflections immediately after experience and then have a time for a more purposeful reflection later in the week. And they're saying, yeah, but they're turning the lights off and locking the doors when we're leaving at half nine at night. When do we do it? So it's about time. And, and some of the techniques b- behind that. And actually in sport, there wasn't anything at the time that governed or said you need to do this because it is good for you and your practice and the people that you work with. So we started to to develop a body of, of, of research. Um, and you've mentioned Elsa, Andy Miles and um, and other people in in this area. And then started to canvas bases and it and it appeared within their supervised experience criteria um and and it was about evidencing reflective practice and i think sometimes with definitions it sometimes helps to think about what it isn't as well as as what it is um so so we sort of took all that across from from teaching and nursing and and we tried to to learn from what they'd done but there were some some 
compatibility issues, I, I guess. It wasn't a smooth transfer. There, there was, you know, people won't or practitioners may not do it if they don't have to do it, if it's not there. Where's the research evidence to say this is good for me and my work and my clients? We want to see, as we do as scientists, we wanted to see some evidence-based practice around it. And if that isn't in place, then why should I create time for it? Because I'm a really busy person and I've got lots of things to do. And actually, I'm judged on the outcome of my athletes or my client recovery. It's not about me. I don't want to be self-indulgent. I don't want to focus on me. I am a good coach or a good physio or a good sports scientist if my athletes perform and are fit and well and healthy. So we had some barriers and, and that was tackled initially within coaching, I think, before it came into, into sports science. Um, and that that's where the research has, has sat, really. There's been sort of a, a group that's looked at it, particularly in, in coaching and then those in sports science. So that's how we've kind of got to that to that point. Mm. Can, can I add to this as well? I think on, a few things that really stand out, I suppose, with the list of organi- or industries that you mentioned in your question, uh, Steve, and, and what Zoe said there. But... Uh, I'm not too sure about the space uh, the space example, but certainly within the others, um, all of the jobs are really characterised by human-to-human interaction. And if we think about, well, what allows us to understand how we apply technical knowledge, for instance, about a profession within a situation that is ultimately complex because we are dealing with human beings. And we're also a human being. We're also going to filter the theoretical, the the practical, the technical knowledge, if you like, of a of an industry, of a of a field through our own lens, through our own values, through who we are as an individual, through our own strengths, etc. And I suppose linked to that, that what Zoe was mentioning there about this concept of evidence-based practice, any any model of evidence-based practice has the uh, consultant's expertise within it. So it might be the the technical knowledge within the field, the client's needs and the consultant's expertise. And I suppose reflective practice sits in helping us to understand how those different forms of evidence fit together. But I I would also argue that it helps us to develop that level of expertise. It helps us to understand who we are, what works for us within the context of our practice. And from a sports point of view, it moves us beyond that outcome-focused approach, i.e. my athletes are performing, to understand why athletes are performing in a particular way, the impact, the agency that you had within helping to develop that. And then I suppose getting us to answer those questions to try to make performance more consistent, more ongoing, because it's arguably what high performance is about, right? We we look to get somebody performing really well, and then we want to try to make that as consistent as we can across competitions or or, uh, whatever it might be. So, yeah, I, I, I suppose that, that's for us where reflective practice sits. It's about developing that type of knowledge that we probably wouldn't get out of other forms of knowing. Okay, so that so there's the the evidence based practice that you're. I suppose there's two ways in which we can interpret that. What what um, we could be thinking about is taking the the learning from our experience. So extracting the intelligence from those interactions, the situations, the the work that we're doing. Could you give us a clue as to what's the underpinning evidence 
for the value of reflection. I guess that's a different evidence base around, well, does it work? Do, you know, what's the, what's the benefit? You mentioned that sort of idea of critique. Why, why am I going to do this? Um, what's, what's the evidence that underpins the value? Yeah, this is a, it's a really interesting question. And, uh, you know, without, um, um, promoting the book in a sickly way, we we've included a chapter in there that kind of covers covers this issue, and we do think that some of the reluctance that Zoe talked about to kind of think about reflective practice is something that we do, and uh, as a fi- um, as part of who we are as practitioners, rather than an add on to what we do, has probably come from that lack of empirical evidence that kind of says, look, do this. And these are the out- outcomes that you can expect. So lo- lots of the, lots of the empirical research is probably more qualitative in nature. It's probably a little, a little more anecdotal. And I suppose in a field like sport and exercise science that has its traditions rooted in positivism, it's been difficult for some people to accept that, you know, spending time reflecting on practice is a worthwhile endeavor. It's going to give you a big bang for your book, for instance. But we are starting to get some studies now that have essentially looked at developing an individual's ability to reflect at more critical levels. So engaging what we might classify as as more meaningful or purposeful reflective practices and the impact that that has on some form of performance outcome of those practitioners. So there's research within um, health practitioners, dietitians, for instance, to look at how becoming better at reflective practice improves their ability to communicate with their clients, which is identified as a key performance characteristic within that particular discipline. We have research with sports psychologists looking a little bit more generally across effectiveness indicators of practice. Um, And what this research is telling us is that becoming better at reflecting, if we want to call it that, it's, that's probably probably a little naive, a little little blunt, but becoming better at reflecting improves these outcome metrics and the processes that result in those outcomes that are linked to more effective practice, if you like. We certainly need more research within this area across the disciplines of, of sports, the sports sciences. But what those uh, intervention studies are probably telling us is that the anecdotal evidence, the the qualitative evidence that's out there, uh, is probably supported in terms of the benefits that individuals are experiencing with things like improved self-awareness, improved creativity, improved ability to problem solve, improved congruence between values and behaviours, improved knowledge. I I love the word that you use there. It's one that, I, I, I suppose, sort of goes under the radar a bit, when we talk about applied practice is intelligence. You know, we're creating a form of applied intelligence that allows us to make good decisions in practice through reflection rather than engaging in those more, I suppose, traditional or naive trial and error approaches to practice that that probably aren't fit for purpose in, in high performance sports. So yeah, the the research evidence from across different well studies that have used different methodologies, it all kind of points in the same direction. There are lots of studies that also discuss the issues associated with reflecting. And you talked about some at the start, Steve, about it being seen as being quite burdensome. Um, Zoe said, Zoe mentioned that point about um, 
practitioners and coaches and individuals not thinking that it's for them or that they need to engage the time that it takes to engage um, the level that individuals are engaging in, i.e. do people just get engaged in good evaluation and think it's reflective practice and expect to get the benefits out of that process that are extolled in the reflective practice literature, for instance. So, yeah, there are pros and cons to this, but... I was just going to say there's there's some research that we're looking into at, at, at John Moore's at the moment around um, aspects of personality and, and linked to, to reflective practice. So more of a, a quantitative type um, look in terms of certain personality traits and, and its associations with reflective processes. And we have benefited actually from um, a period of, of work that was was done by by Dr. Emma Huntley uh, through her PhD. That was long it was longitudinal on the basis that it was completed part time. And through that research, we we tracked novice reflectors um, and and sought to understand how that skill uh, developed over time. So I think when you look at the research evidence, it, it's multidimensional, multifaceted. There's different types of, of work going, you know, going on. And we are in, you know, in, in a space where people say, well, where's the evidence for that? We're, we're scientists. We, we understand that. But I, I think there is a collection of, of work out there, as Brendan says, that, that points in the direction of this is good for you as an individual and for the people and your, and the practice in which you're in which you're operating um it does come however with a bit of a health warning and i think it's important to to talk about that a little bit in terms of um when it is self focused and depending on the te- techniques that you that you use um it can quite quickly develop into something akin to, to sort of learned helplessness and a sense that if it's not supported and facilitated in in such a way that that can become detrimental and also that we focus on what what goes well in our practice I think you know we are naturally conditioned as humans when something goes wrong let's have an inquiry let's have a review let's let's look into things and you've only got to you know look at the the sports pages or the news every day to see that that so when something goes wrong it provokes those types of investigations and reviews and one of the hardest things to get across to practitioners is actually focus on what went right and when you when you look at some of the models of reflective practice, it tells you to what was good and bad about that situation. And good is important. And, not, you know, from, from my experience of working with practitioners, they can tell you 22 things that w- went wrong. When you say, what was what was good? What did you do really well? Th- that's re- actually really, really hard for people to, to do. So I, I think when we when we look at reflection, we do need to, you know, approach with some some caution and some idea of what working through that process may do. It's not all it's not all positive in terms of engaging in that process, and it, there sh- certainly should be a positive focus on practice as well. Because if you don't 
elicit what went well from that practice, you're leaving the possibility of it happening in the future to chance, right? So there's that sense of capturing good practice as as well and not just letting it fly by in the the complexities of everyday practice and and, and things that you you capture it and celebrate it and, and and that's important i think when we when we start to look about look look back at reflection and meta reflection but we won't get into that just now <laughs> reflecting on my reflecting Re- reflecting on reflection Re- yeah okay um <laughs> infinite infinite mirrors i'm imagining there so <laughs> Okay, that, there's a lot in there. I'd love to unpick a few of those. Certainly, I'd like to ask about personality. Um, and thank you for highlighting, I guess, some risks uh, if if it's not done properly. I think that's useful for people to know. Um, that's not been my experience, but I can see what you mean. I can see how that sense of um, when I when I messed up, when I've messed up with athletes. Um, I wrote about this in How to Sport Champion, actually, <clears throat> when I, I thought, all right, I've stepped over the line. And reflection was a good place to go to process it. So it was a healthy way of of unpacking a mistake. Um, but that I like that idea of of making sure that you are supporting yourself, supporting your future self, by highlighting what what's going well and coming back to your point there, Brendan, around, I suppose, you know, in, the world of work is changing. You know, we, we're in this sort of AI um, epoch that's about to kick in. But as you, as you just listed some of the evidence behind which reflective practice can support the development of critical thinking, creativity, innovation, I was just writing a blog just this morning about um, articles and research done by the World Economic Forum, highlighting that those are the things that the employers are looking for most now. And I suppose if if we if we sort of graduate literally from our education with a certain skill set of knowing and doing, then if we're coming now into an advent of changing working demands, these are the things that we're going to need to recognise when we do creativity well, when we have critical thinking skills, when we have innovative thoughts, we're going to need to foster them quite nicely. And reflective practice seems like a healthy tool to lean into, oh, I came up with that idea today. It seemed to it seemed to run and and be able to grow some of these novel skills that aren't really developed in our educational system. It feels like Reflection could help our future working selves, not knowing what those <laughs> actually going to look like. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's um, uh, and we see this, I suppose, with the way in which the um, uh, the way in which reflective practice has been embraced by some of those more positivistic disciplines of the sports sciences. You know, the work of uh, Chris Sedlak and Brian Garrity and uh, um, Clayton Cooklick in in S and C. Uh, under uh, starting to understand the importance of strength and conditioning coaches learning about those non-mechanistic aspects of what they do and that there's similar uh, similar um, examples from James Morton within uh, performance physiology and nutrition um uh, and other authors that uh, elude my uh, memory at this point in time but yeah we're starting to see this understanding that 
as the world changes and as people change, and certainly coming out of the back of COVID, the way in which we work, we live our lives, the values that we have as as individuals have probably been shaped by that experience somewhat. And so, you know, the old approaches to those things that work when when we talk about working with other people are, are probably um, are probably a little bit uh, past a sell by date now. And so, we have to figure out other ways of being successful of of managing um performance in a way that is uh, flexible and adaptable to you know the nuances of society and i think really reflecting on ourselves and how we interact with those individuals and the strengths that we have and the the knowledge that we have that's in almost implicit within us um, becomes a really important process particularly for those working in the sports sciences but i suppose it it spreads across anybody who's working in a profession where they will interact with other people. Yeah. I mean, that does make me wonder about whether and the next generation and the evidence behind our current crop of adolescents and the future generation and Gen Z, they're going to be looking for more purpose. They're going to be looking for, they are going to be becoming more self-aware. I wonder if, we're actually looking to campaign for a generation who might be a little bit reserved, can't be vulnerable at any point in my career, can't can't give away my mistakes. Um, I'm just wondering whether the future generation is going to adopt this at a, a much greater rate, given the the approach th- that we're hearing from a personality characteristics of different generations. I, I mean, I think personally. Um, the way that children and young people learn through school now, they are becoming more mental health literate, they and emotionally literate, and um, the the way that they're taught often allows them to to ask questions, to to look a little bit more critically at what they're what they're reading, what they're what they're seeing, and I think there is a real shift of of skills that you know instead of being taught at they're they're taught with and uh children and young people are listened to more and and those skills are developing through through their compulsory education and you certainly see that in sort of BTEC courses um and then as they come in come into university I guess from a curriculum point of view we need to look at at how we teach how we interact with them um this sense of delivering like large lectures and 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 how you know how how they learn from that of course there is a a place and, and a need but students are are inspired when they have opportunity to work with experienced practitioners, they like to hear what we've been up to and how we've learned. And I think, I think you're right in terms of the different generations and and how we how we have learned ourselves on the call compared to that of 16, 17, 18 year olds is is radically radically different. And from my experience, if you give young people the opportunity. To, to talk and and share and you create that reflective space. Um, I have the privilege of of working with um, final year students on their first sort of placement encounter, and it, it truly is a privilege to help them to 
to navigate all of that knowledge and and skills and sort of practicum work that they've done over level four and five and apply it and you know as we said at the at the, the start of the interview and learn from that experience and it's helping them to process that and I do think that the students leave with a real sense of of understanding reflection and as we've said the different professions where reflective practice occurs albeit it might be badged differently but whether that's teaching the military physiotherapy social work you know hr any any role that requires you to to consider human factors and and you know interactions interpersonal interactions it's a really really important skill and i think there is a danger that it's housed within professional training schemes that happen after a degree and maybe we need to look at how it's embedded within degree programs so though so we create reflective graduates into whatever career path they go into um that they're able to to undertake a process to extract learning from experiences wherever their their career journeys take them and and maybe that should be something that we look at in terms of interviewing practitioners we look at qualifications we look at you know who you, who have you worked with um mm. maybe we should be really thinking about asking people what did they learn from that experience how did they use ref- reflection how did they know it was reflection and not something else and i think brendan mentioned sort of evaluation and and those types of or or appraisal and those types of traditional evaluation of practice how about we teach early career practitioners to 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 reflect and do effective reflection if if that makes sense yeah i mean i think that's that's a that's a criteria that you'd look for when you're interviewing is at the very least has some is someone self-aware and self-aware because I'm looking for information as a manager about whether I can help this person and support this person and coach them because they're going to need to be adaptable. And so self-awareness as a underpinning performance criteria for a practitioner, I think is, is critical. Can I just ask you a question, Steve? Um, in your work, do you, do you get the sense, and this is a massive generalisation here, so forgive me, but do you get the sense that there is a, there is a growing uh, mentality for kind of this hurry-up approach, this shortcut approach, that, you know, I kind of want to get to, I want to get to the pot of gold without necessarily having to put the hard miles in, so to speak. I don't know whether I've explained myself very no, well. No, I, I saw that that statement early on in your book, and I and it was something I was going to ask you about as to whether it's something actually it's always been there, or or we're just becoming more conscious of this bouncing from task to task without necessarily taking that pause to recover and and at least process. Um, I, I think that it varies greatly, and I think it probably comes down to leadership. Uh, more than anything so the the sense of a good manager being able to facilitate high performance from their staff to be able to hold them there in that reflective phase 
at least for the critical moments, the big moments, um, the, the the debriefs, the reflections from the the at the end of the season. Before you bounce off to onto holiday, we're going to reflect, um, and we're going to do that before you restart again, post Olympics, big cycles. At least doing that, but probably as a as a manager and a leader, you'd want to be able to sort of almost supplement the, the natural skill set around. You mentioned there, Zoe, about you might have somebody who's just ruminating, beating themselves up, beating themselves up. And as a manager, it's your job properly to lift them up. What, what what did go well and what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do to prevent this happening again? Good coaching questions that, that allow them to step forward. I think probably there is a, and this is a generic statement, but I think this applies to a sector of our profession. I think that there is a, a large portion of, of people who are doing work that isn't incredibly progressive. It is quite basic or superficial in nature. And, and so they are probably not reflecting. And if they are reflecting, they're getting frustrated because they've been giving some GPS to process and doesn't really do anything. It doesn't go anywhere. Nothing changes. No tactics get, get, get uh, changed as a consequence. The, the conversation's not even been had. And so there's a processing task. And if people are reflecting on that, they're probably going to get a bit frustrated. Nothing's changing. I'm now a bit down about my effectiveness and my contribution. Um, but I think for a, another portion where there is much more openness to critique much more openness to receiving information about how we could make the system better. Um, and, and I noticed that chapter again, complex systems mm-hmm. where there's so many dynamics that are, are going on so much information. Okay. So how are we going to make sense of that on an individual level and as a group and what are we going to do about it? So it's a long way of saying, I, I don't think, um, well, actually another point, but it's sort of in summary. Certainly my w- work crossing over into business, um, the hurry up mentality is pervasive. And I think perhaps we do it a little bit better in sport. We do take the tar- chance to say, how did that game go? And we do take a bit of um, chance to reflect. Um, and, and maybe that question to you, back to you guys about, does it actually work if it's a policy to reflect? Um, you know, if it's if we take that nursing idea of it's it's your job to reflect, because for, for me, when I'm talking to practitioners who don't know what this is about, mm-hmm. I say only reflect if you want to get good, and it's a bit sarcastic, it's a bit pointed, it's got a bit of a barb to it, I know, but only reflect if you want to get good is is you you taking the opportunity to to be better tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think you mentioned something at the start, Steve, about. Um, um it's probably seen to be a gatekeeper to something to to do something so it might be a gatekeeper to a qualification or in certain fields um for in clinical psychology for instance i'm pretty sure it's built into um it's an ethical requirement within some uh industries that uh, practitioners will have time for reflection it has to be built into workload but 
typically it's the easiest thing to get rid of when when your workload increases it's it's the easiest thing not to do but i'm trying not to sit in an ivory tower here i I would just argue well can you afford not to do it because if it is about improvement and and trying to make things better not only yourself but the environment that you work in or the processes that you work with then maybe maybe we have to kind of build into what we do about the strategies that we use in order to do that um and we're probably talking more here about you know the sort of approaches to reflective practice that are linked to on reflection on action but we also have to understand that you know there's probably a lot of reflection that kind of goes on goes on more in the in the midst of things certainly as you develop your expertise and you're able to think in a way that is reminiscent of being reflection in in the um in the action itself then you know there will be other things going on but i do think that there's probably a systemic issue in that we know that it's kind of good for practitioners we know that it's kind of good for people we we would like to have it as part of a fundamental part of what we do but we're just not that willing to give it the time and light of day that it probably deserves you know and and it does need that kind of approach to culture as as well um I I always used to think, uh, you know, the practitioners doing reflection were almost sat in dark corners and and reflecting um, with a sense of, you know, I don't want to tell people what I'm doing because they're they're going to be thinking, well, what what are you doing? What are you doing that for? And we're not paying you to sit and think, Um, you know, we're paying you to do. Uh, We're not giving you time to do this. And 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 I think it was around that sort of culture and that if you get two three four like-minded reflectors together that's incredibly powerful to start driving a a cultural change around the way that you the way that you work and you you mentioned that that organization chapter and the the ability for that to happen in a psychologically safe environment and that it it see it becomes a way of working it's the way it's the way that we work and then if you if you join in that team you want you want individuals who have that self-awareness that that ability to be able to to reflect to be you know to be critical around practice to see opportunities to you know for accountability that that type of thing and uh, that is in uh, you know certainly when you look at, at at nursing that is part and parcel of of what they do and and wow in 20 in 20 odd years we've come a long way in sport from it not even existing to now being you know being known and part of of what a lot of of practitioners do but there have been some uh, you know that there's been reluctance i think we've already spoken about and um individual trailblazers for their for their um their particular sports science disciplines and quite easily now you could be in a setting where you've got two three four people who've who've all got awareness of of this um from the last 20 years and and, and can create something that's that's really meaningful and powerful an opportunity to to drive you know to drive that that culture and I'd like to think that that graduates and that you know the the next generation of sport and exercise science practitioners can ask about that type of environment. That it's something that, that it's an environment they want to work in, where there is opportunity and safety 
to to do reflection that nobody's going to say oh you know you're not just sitting here thinking we're not paying you to think we're paying you to do and that it's that it's welcomed because of the the, the value that that brings to the to the work environment so you know we are in, in in a positive sense we have come a long way we've still got still got work to do but I'm starting to think that there is now a rather than it be individuals that are doing this reflection somehow people are coming together now and creating workplaces where this is openly talked about and accepted and embraced and encouraged and that there's space and opportunity to be able to be able to do that and that's that's quite powerful um and and it's inspirational in terms of of creating creating change so so whether those people are purposely brought together or mm. just happened to have, have come together with it you know and have a similar way of working in 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 sport we're starting to see that more and more now mm. uh, i think there's there's something in that around role modeling um mm-hmm. certainly for certainly for people who are vicariously just one step ahead of you to see that people are doing that, but also from, from role models, people that you look up to, um, that I think that that that's important to see people who are being vulnerable and open about ways in which they're reflecting. Um, for example, in our, um, supporting champions community, I, I post every weekday and Thursdays as a reflection. Um, I haven't done it yet. Cause I thought I'd do this after this okay. session <laughs> that would that would be meta um, right so that's that's important for that important for that role modeling aspect but I, but one of the things that i noticed and you know this is anecdotal so it's not it's just my observation that going into so, so this is early career going into a role and feeling that complexity feeling that overwhelm feeling that incompetence feeling the things that i studied perhaps don't relate to the demands in, in work now, that conscious incompetence of sensing, I don't know what I am doing. And perhaps by dint of association, because my dear friend Elsa was nagging me to do this every other day about really big and really small things, perhaps by association, I could see that it was a vehicle to prevent mistakes in the future to to process information but for me one of the biggest things I, I would talk to people about is it i think it helped me remove that that sense of self-doubt incompetence i felt like i knew what i was doing a bit earlier than some of my peers i think that i could see people continuing to flounder or to continue to make mistakes and I hadn't got that sense myself because I'd been through a process of learning. Um, that, that was perhaps one of the biggest selling points. I think that people do relate to the, almost the pain point. What's this going to solve? What's reflective practice besides, come on, join Team RP and, and you're going to believe it and you're going to achieve it. That sense of selling it, actually, what? What's the what's the pain it's actually going to take away? And for me, it's the, the it was the incompetence or um, s- supporting my future self that that really helped. I think. I, th- I think there's there's some good examples to really support your experience, uh, Steve, in the literature and and certainly in some of the applied case studies that that we've presented 
in the new text. Um, you know, there's almost the you know, we, we talked about reflective practices, essentially about learning from experience, etc. But what that learning looks like is is absolutely multifaceted, and part part of it might be about you know the, the cathartic release of just really allowing you to get out of your mind all of these things that are racing around that are potentially clouding your views of your level, your ability to be competent, your ability to be effective within your practice, but also, um, you know, going back to Zoe's point about what's actually working for you. What is it that you're doing that's having a positive impact? Because certainly in those early stages of being a practitioner, I think, uh, as Zoe mentioned, you, we will always focus on those things that aren't working. We'll focus on those things that we can't do. And I, I remember uh, listening to somebody else talk about reflective practice before, and they kind of said, well, if you're always reflecting on those things that you can't do, it's going to lead to this deficit-based thinking approach, you know, where you're almost thinking yourself into oblivion, and it, it might end up stopping you from actually practicing because you kind of think that you're not competent enough to mm. elicit appropriate change or or to engage in, in appropriate practice. So. Yeah, obviously, there's a lot to be said for learning about those things that aren't working or the mistakes that we make, the problems we experience within practice. But certainly, there's also that the cathartic benefit of engaging in a process that gets us to really step aside from ourselves to make sense of ourselves better and understand those things that we are good at and that we do do and we can do. So can I just pick up on that? And and maybe I should just flag that We've been talking around the topic. Maybe I should ask you about some models, some suggest some suggestions, whether that's more comprehensive or some sort of abbreviated processes. Maybe the the from the podcast people can take away and and utilize. So before I do that, can I just pick up on that point about um about that tendency to get maybe ruminate too much, um beat themselves up a little bit. And I, I'm, I'm curious to know, and so you mentioned maybe some research in this area around sort of personality styles and preferences that, that might underpin uh, what, what might be more beneficial for different types. Mm. And maybe you could unpack some of the psychological concepts or biases that a structured approach can help with. And I'm so, so bear with me because i'm having a go at psychology here i'm not having a go at it i'm i'm, I'm playing with, <laughs> uh, with psychology here but um i go to thinking of jeffrey gray's reinforcement sensitivity theory about our sensitivity to reward and risk and so so for for people who are listening in that's that's about whether i'm activated to go and seek some sort of reward or whether i'm inhibited i'm holding back and i don't want to i don't want to feel some sort of punishment or or get eaten by the tiger, for example. I think that was right. I'll have a go. Um, there you go. But so I like the reflective cycle because it holds me in place where I don't normally sit. So being more activation oriented, I moved to the sort of latter end of, of reflective cycles about, right, so now what? What are we going to do? What's tomorrow look like? Those sort of lessons, let, let's go. But a reflective cycle seems to sort of hold me more at the, what I would call the, right, okay, what happened? <laughs> uh, at least sitting, holding me there, what went wrong? How could you not mess up? 
those sorts of questions that perhaps I'm not naturally oriented to. Um, so there's just my pop psychology having a go and under, trying to understand it. But I feel that tension and that a little bit of pressure when I'm doing a reflective process of, I don't normally think this way. Okay, that's probably helpful. Um, so that's a long way I would, of saying. I would agree. What, I, I, I would what, agree. Go on. I think um, it can be following any reflective process, and by, and by all means, listeners can go to Google, put in reflective practice models, and it will spill out a whole load of different models. And I think over many years, all of us that have been working in this field, when we've delivered education on reflective practice, that there's a real sense of, well, you're going to tell us how to do it. And, you know, if we do this three times a week and we follow these questions, we'll have done reflective practice. And it's almost very prescription-like. And it's not like that. I always start from the basis of you, you need to check that what you're doing is reflection because otherwise it's something else. It's contemplation, it's mulling over, it's evaluation. So is it reflection? And reflection involves the whole person. So that there is a, a sense in, in many of the models that you do need to stop. You do need to, to contemplate where you are. And you, and you mentioned about questions and reflective practice. The heart of reflective practice is questions. So, so you have to be prepared to ask challenging questions. And if you take Gibbs's 1988 model and I always start with that one with with undergraduate students Graham Gibbs was an educationalist but it's 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 a really handy model that depicts reflection as a cycle and it asks you what you are it starts with a a description and a lot of people get stuck there so this sense of I did this then I did that then a change you know and then I went and spoke to this person that's not reflection it then asks you to what you what you are thinking and feeling. And wow, are those big questions? What are you thinking and feeling? And that's where people get stuck because they are, you know, reflection is a cognitive process. And then we're asking you to to make explicit what you are thinking and feeling. And and there's there's risk associated with that. It's uncomfortable, it's challenging. You then move to, uh, to to sort of processes around what sense you can make of the situation and evaluation. So evaluation is what was good or bad about the experience. Did it work? Did it not work? It's Evaluation is not reflection. It's a stage within reflection. What sense can you make of the situation? Well, I guess at early career stages, you don't know. You don't know. Sometimes you don't know why something's gone well and you don't know why something's gone wrong. And that's where it's important to have, you know, uh, supervision or people you can go and talk to and say, Do you know what, this this happened today when I was delivering this workshop. And I have no idea what went on. I don't know where. I, I just don't understand. So so you have sense making in there. And then I think where you were saying, Steve, is, is you're more around the, OK, so what can I do next and how am I going to go about it? And there is that you know that there is that kind of rush I think for practitioners to get to that stage but I would ask those listening to really subscribe to the to the other stages and as I say there's Gibbs's model and I know Brendan's got some shorter shorter models that, that he uses with practitioners um, 
but subscribe to each of those stages. If you're going to embrace reflection, you've got to do it wholeheartedly with the whole person that involves thoughts, feelings, evaluations, sense making, action planning. And if you're doing it right, it should feel like you've been through a process and and not just some kind of quick thinking mechanism or, or it should feel like you you've been through the mill a little bit I think at the end of it because it does get challenge you in ways that you wouldn't normally think about an experience so so that's a model that I that I use Brendan I know you've got some shorter quick question type ones uh, that might be helpful for listeners I, I love that description though because I think that that's the actual point of trying to tie back some of the other things that we've said, that you can't go to the end of one of these frameworks and answer the last question and expect to have engaged in a process of reflective practice that leads to better action or more consistent action in the future. Those former stages allow you to make sense of those the changes that can be made and why those changes might be most appropriate. It's that intelligent practice that we're looking for. Or the intelligent outcomes, I suppose. So, yeah, the earlier questions kind of become really, really fundamental uh, within that process. Yeah, there are so many frameworks out there to guide practice that basically list questions in in different formats, in different frameworks, in different diagrammatical representations. Um, Driscoll's, uh, it's commonly attributed to Driscoll's um, I think it's 1994. Uh, that that person's model is about um, asking yourself three questions: what, so what, and now what. A sense it's taking you through the same cyclical process that that Gibbs is taking you through, but asking you or framing questions in a very different way. And if you look at that model, they will ask different questions underneath each of those each of those three headings. And the key, the key thing is, in that sense, is that you haven't got to answer all of those questions. Those questions are there to guide your thinking, your thought, to to take you through the process, to make intelligent decisions about what might be best for you moving forwards. And obviously, obviously Alsa um, modified um, Chris Johns's model as part of her PhD, and it sounds like you have the pleasure of engaging in that pro- approach. I think there's about 27 questions in that that model. It's probably one of the longest, but it's also one of the one of the uh, frameworks. Sorry, that probably asks some of the more difficult or interesting questions about practice that really get you to think about those things that you wouldn't traditionally think about in a review or an evaluation. And I, I certainly, as part, as part of my PhD and my training, um, I utilise Alsa's Alsa's model. Um, and found it extremely useful, but again, extremely time consuming because I did a few things that I don't think that I needed to do. First and foremost, if I was reflecting on an experience, I reflected on the entire thing. So minute one to minute 90 or minute one to minute 60. And I was trying to reflect on everything. I don't think that elicits the best learning. And certainly I didn't have the time to engage in the process in that particular way. And so one thing that I've learned and one thing I think we talk about quite a lot is to try and make the reflection as purposeful as possible irrespective of what framework you're going to use utilize that first part Gibbs's description Driscoll's um what uh, Alsa's first questions which are based on description 
utilize those to identify the one thing that you could reflect on that's going to give you a real big bang for your buck in terms of moving your practice forward or helping you to understand yourself or the environment that you work in and then utilize that to uh, provide the frame for your reflection and the other thing is i suppose um, not necessarily with Gibbs's model because it's a little bit more pointed and there's only six questions, but certainly with models that were presented by Driscoll and, and uh, Alsa, you don't have to answer all of the questions. They're, they're not there to be answered like a questionnaire, like a psychometric. I didn't know that. Survey. <laughs> <laughs> so Alsa's, Alsa's model is split into five different sections with questions underneath. You're and the, the sections are, are pretty much based on, on sort of Gibbs's uh, cycle. The questions underneath those five sections are there to guide your thoughts. If you need them, then yeah, go, go to them. But if you think you kind of made sense of what it is you want to reflect on already in the description, you haven't got to answer these things in a linear fashion. It's, it's, that's not the approach. And I think that can turn a lot of people off because they see it as a very academic exercise. They see it as, as very, you know, very, um, extensive exercise not in terms of the amount of themselves that they're putting into the process but the amount of time that they they have to put into the process so yeah there, there are lots of models and like it like zoe said the amount of sort of questions we get around well what's the best one what's going to give me the best reflection and we're like well all of them hmm. it depends on the reason that you're reflecting i i kind of use the phrase all the time pick the process to suit the purpose don't just pick the process because it's your favourite. Yeah, I, I think I think um, it was it was quite burdensome to be able to do that twenty seven point thing every day. But then you you go to the Gibbs model, and even then that would be hard every day. And if your day is fairly ordinary, maybe there's not the intelligence to extract for for your future self. And so that kind of leads me to ideas that and context around when I would use it. And so if, if in the moment, whilst I'm delivering, I think, ah, oh, okay, need to do that differently. That, that will be a hot reflection that I will capture immediately. This happened, do this. And, and the action I would actually try and make, I would actually make a change, whether that is content, whether that is tone, whether that is materials, I would make that change, try and make that change within 24 hours so that there's, there's something that is developing quickly from it. Um, and I think that that's useful for people to recognize that, that maybe there's a chance to just generally reflect on your day and plan for tomorrow, um, but also a process to capture the hot and the cold reflections for something that's quite intense or there's a lot of learning from it. That That, that, that sense of... I, I, I use it when I need it rather than that, that I need to be a slave to it. I think that's useful for me to recognize. Yeah. I absolutely. think there's, I think there's some, you know, there's some really great work going on um, by Dr. Amy Whitehead around think aloud. And what we've um, been involved in, in some of that work. So how, how do we capture reflections in action? So using techniques by which you're, uh, you know, you, you have a microphone and, and we've, we've done some work with, with rugby league players and, and Amy's done some work in, in different sports to try and capture think aloud. So the articulation of, of your thoughts and use that as the basis for reflection. So you've got that immediate inaction 
type of, of, of activity. Um, you've then got, I guess, some research that I, I did back in 2007, 2012, sort of staged reflection. So I think that's what you're describing here, Steve, is, is that ability to be able to, to sort of capture something and think, and, and and make a note of it somehow, whether it's a little notebook in your back pocket, whether it's a voice note on your phone, but that that sense of oh, I, I need to think about that a little bit a little bit more at some point. So so you make that kind of of note, but you don't do you don't necessarily do anything with it at that point. And if we take the Gibbs's model, that would be capturing description, thoughts and feelings, and evaluation. Okay, and then that would stop. I think then as you start to get more into the sort of sense making, what options are available, you know, what other options were available to you, action planning, that actually that that might might need time. Um, it might need time between that immediacy and that more delayed reflection. And in that time frame, you might change your own perspective you might ask questions of other of other people you know this happened this happened today and you know I was, I, I was feeling about this so so in this you know we all have that notion of oh I'll sleep on it or uh, you know that that sense of yeah. the passage of time and the change of perspective and if you then start to look at what sense you know what sense can you make of a situation what other options were available two or three days later it looks different um and and you feel different and you think different but it is really important to try and capture those thoughts and feelings at the time or as close to the experience as possible because they can dissipate over time they can change over time so you might look back and think, I don't know why I was so angry about that, or I, I don't know why I was so confused actually, because it all worked out in the end. So, so there is this kind of temporal pattern to, to reflection where you've got reflection in action around some of the think aloud type of techniques, uh, more immediate reflection. So as something's finished, it might be the quick five minutes when you get in the car and a, a quick sort of talk into your dictaphone, into your voice notes on your phone or dictaphone, and then maybe setting something out within your week or your month to do some purposeful reflection. And then what happens as, as people are on professional training program, and I'm coming up to the meta reflection bit now, is that actually you might be required to reflect on your reflections so when you submit evidence for professional training schemes about reflections, just the fact that you've have you're having to sort of condense months, years of work into a, a short submission is a process of reflection itself, and it's kind of reflecting on your reflection. So there is a temporality to, to this, and uh, and I think that's important to point out for listeners that this is not a one it wonder. You, you start at the top, you work way around and it's finished, that there is a purposeful revisiting of your reflections, which can be comforting. You might be, might be able to start identifying patterns. This same thing keeps coming up about confidence or, you know, I, I keep having these same, these same thoughts or same feelings. That can be really insightful to, to, to start to look at, at patterns of thoughts, feelings, behaviors, whatever it may be, actions. Do you keep making the same mistake time and time again? 
Um, so there is a temporality to, mm. to reflection. So that might be helpful for listeners to think about how those types of things can fit into their practice, their ways of, of working. Just add to this. I think think how you described it, uh, Steve, really fits well with the modality, I suppose, that that I've tried to adopt over recent years, just because of, I suppose, the multiple roles that many of us in academia fill. You know, we we probably do a bit of some consultancy work. There's external engagement, research, learning and teaching, administration, etc. It becomes almost impossible to reflect on all of those different roles and, and things in a, on an on a ongoing basis so there will be that sort of reflection in action through which you're making or trying to make intelligent decisions about how you improve what you do or make more efficient what you do on a, on a regular basis but I've kind of got into the habit of trying to at the end of each day record down anything that's really stood out from that day in whatever context it's, it is that I've been working in and I'll, I'll try and note some of the things down that Zoe said. It might be about, you know, like, do you know what? I'm feeling really upset or frustrated or whatever it might be. I don't know why, but I'm just going to write those words down on Monday in my diary. And then I'll do the same on the Tuesday, Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, et cetera. Um, some entries might be a little bit more um, informative than others. But at the end of the week, I'll kind of try and make – I'll sit down and try to build in a little bit of time at the end of my working week. It's you know, very lucky that that we're able to do this in academia, um, although it probably, it probably extends into my personal time, to be honest. But let's say it's at the end of the working week. Um, and I'll look back through all of my entries and kind of decide what is the one thing that if I was to sit down now and spend some time really engaging in a purposeful and meaningful – as critical of a reflection as I can that would give me a, a big boost moving into next week. And I'd just focus on that one thing and not beat myself up about reflecting on everything. But like Zoe said, you you kind of might see patterns throughout that week. You know, so I think Zoe was mentioning you know over over a longer period of time, but you might see patterns in the week of do you know what of Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, I cope with some really big demands in these different working situations. I probably haven't given myself credit for my ability to to cope in those situations and demonstrate some of the adaptive behaviors that are, that's allowed for positive action so you might reflect on that that you know your ability to to adapt to demands some of the personal resources that you might have that that allow you to manage those things within your work in the personal life except life etc so mm. yeah there are many different ways to engage in this and like i said the purpose should drive the approach but yeah like zoe said you know we should be building on this approach it's not something that we pick up and put down as and when we see fit but it should be an ongoing approach to thinking about ourselves and our practice essentially i mean i, I like that idea and i hadn't really th- thought about it and and sometimes you know you have you're you're on it you're happy you're energized and um other days you're just a bit flat and you just just hold it steady and other days you struggle and and i, I i've probably I probably would think why might that be the case when I'm down, but I might not necessarily think that about that. And I wouldn't even think about it being part of a reflective process or structure. So that's, that's really useful. And I, and I loved the fact that you recognized how in the book about ref- reflection can support mental health and reflection as a process for self care. Um, just as we sort of wrap up, is there any sort of comments you wanted to make about just that as a vehicle? 
Yeah, I think uh, Zoe's mentioned um, some really important things that you know, engaging in reflective practice can lead to feelings of vulnerability, can start to make you question yourself and your ability. So, so you know, we, we, we have to temper any of the benefits associated with reflection and well-being and associated uh, mental health with the you know, likelihood that it might make us feel a little uncomfortable at times, absolutely. And I suppose... I think Zoe has always said we have to embrace those feelings of being vulnerable, uh, of being vulnerable and, and uncomfortable. But yeah, I, I, I think within the research, within um, Emma Emma's um, early chapter in the book, she talks about you know the researchers have now started to identify that reflective practice can be used as a as a mechanism to support people to manage, maintain, and experience well being on a more regular basis. Um, and maybe as a protective factor against you know, uh, the experience of ill-being and some of the symptoms that, that are linked to um, uh, that particular state. But we know that reflective practice offers us a cathartic release. It offers us an opportunity for, as Zoe mentioned, that pause in time, that step away from the um, you know, the complexity and the, um, the busyness, the... Um, the nature of professional practice that, that we're all engaged in within our busy lives to really try to make sense of something that's meaningful for us. And I suppose if reflective practice, as you mentioned, Steve, is helping us to feel more competent, it's helping us to feel more in control of the way in which we're developing. And if we engage in, in reflective practice in certain ways, it might help us to feel more related. We're actually satisfying some of the basic psychological needs that we have that are directly linked to mental well-being, for instance. So there is a natural theoretical link between reflective practice, the outcomes of reflection, and, and the experience of some of those positive psychological states. It's just that you know, we have to see reflection more than just reviewing sessions. We have to see reflection as an opportunity to reflect on other things of uh, that, that are associated with ourselves and our being, and if we do that, then yeah, we can we can really focus in on you know, what what are we doing within our lives that are, that's allowing us to live our true values. What is it that's giving meaning within our lives? How are we engaging in practice in a way in which we can bring ourselves to the party? All of those factors are linked to eudaimonic aspects of of well being, right? And mm-hmm. so yeah, there, there is that natural link there. So I do think that. Yeah, as practitioners in whatever discipline you're working in, we have to also see the benefits of engaging in reflective practice for our own performance, our own ability to function. That that would be my view. Yeah, great, great point to sort of wrap up on there. And that sense of, you know, if we're working in performance, we're working to support other people to be their best in coaching or in health. This is about us ref- putting that process back to our, ourselves, isn't it? And to a certain extent, it's, it's scientific in nature to review um, rather than just, oh, well, that happened. Let's just leave it. It It is at the very heart of the, the type of work that we do. So, um, so I mean, thank you so much for the, the conversation today. I really, really enjoyed it. I'm going to go and do a full 27-point reflection after this, and, and then hopefully I'll get my badge in the post for Team RP. Um, but I, and what I'll probably do is include some something in the show notes. I'll include a couple of worksheets for people to to go through. And if Brendan Zoe, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having You're us. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Now, we've got plenty more to come. So if you'd like to support and champion us, then take the time to subscribe and leave a review on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you tune in. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. All the links are in the show notes. So in the meantime, have a great week. Thank you.